0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.
1: Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns, with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn, you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora and welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. I am super super excited for this episode because I have a guest on for the first time in a year. Woohoo! So in a couple of minutes you'll hear a voice other than me and boy what a voice it is. Um, This week I sit down with Kaz and we talk about all sorts of interesting things. Um, Just a wee disclaimer on my end. I... Tripped on my words a lot I think I must have been so very overwhelmed and excited by having another human on I just forgot to English and I forgot to use my words um but I still want to put this episode out because Kaz just gave so many gems um and it doesn't matter if i just don't know how to English properly a little bit here and there. Um, I will fully take that. And for the next time, I'll be I'll be sure to curb my excitement just a little bit um, for y'all. Um, but yes, I have Kaz. Yeah, she came and had a chat with me. And we spoke about all sorts of things. So we spoke about identity and belonging. Her parents are from South China. And they met here in Aotearoa. And yeah decided to meld their lives together and had a family and her journey um, navigating her cheeriness as she coins is very interesting to hear. I um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot actually. I think Uh, she's also had a very interesting experience with religion as well because she is a devout Christian of um, specifically the Anglican faith and just hearing about how she's navigated her sense of identity and belonging with her race as well as her religion has been very interesting and also hearing how you know, she went to a school where it was very diverse, and she was surrounded by um, a lot of Maori people, and so was immersed in the Te ao Māori world. I think it's very, very interesting, and I can see how that background has kind of led her to where she is in her mahi now, and trying to honour te tiriti and you know, chart, making sure those conversations happen in her community. So that was really, really interesting. We also had a really good chat around, um, you know, everything that's been happening in the world recently with um, the increase in Asian hate crimes and discrimination since covid um and we also spoke about the um atlanta shootings and how her life has changed because of those two things and um how she feels about it as an asian woman living in new zealand um so that was really really interesting um we also delve more into and what that conversation looks like in the asian community but also um As a country, you know, what kind of conversations should we be having in that space? And finally, she gave some really good um, advice on how to have uncomfortable conversations and... um, You know The advice itself is pretty simple, learning how to listen, but the way she explains why it's so important that we listen and how just truly listening leads to opening doors for empathy and curiosity and courage, um, it was really well worded and um, she just put a whole nother perspective on it. So I'm really excited to um, present this episode to you guys and I'm so grateful that I had Kaz on the show. Um before we get into the yarns with Kaz, I just want to kind of explain a bit more about the model Um my the model myth minority. Sorry, here I am losing my words again um, because we do talk about it a lot on the show um, but we don't really explain what the model minority myth actually like what it really means we didn't delve deep into it we kind of spoke more about how that myth has manifested in Kaz's life Um, but we actually didn't sit down and kind of talk about what the model minority myth is Um, so what the model minority myth is it's based on stereotypes and it's um, setting up this dynamic where the Asian community is seen as the model um minority model migrant um coming to you know it's not just something that's observed in New Zealand it's also in America and UK as well but um you know migrants of Asian descent are the exemplar migrants because they do not feature in the negative statistics the same way other marginalized communities do and tend to have higher economic and educational success and it's really dangerous and damaging because of this stereotype and this success that is um ascribed to asians um i think it gives that sense of asians uh closer or yeah closer in proximity to whiteness um that is very very damaging for many reasons it drives a wedge between um asians and the the rest of the ethnic community um and i can definitely and kaz touches upon it a bit as well but there's now this divide right and the sense of um a barrier between asian communities empathizing with other marginalized um ethnic communities and recognizing that um yeah it yeah drives a wedge and causes more divide and internalized racism but it also creates this insane pressure to be white, you know? Um Kaz touches upon living in these two worlds. Um and having a foot in both worlds and i think this having this model myth minority um, there's this perceived proximity to whiteness but also efforts to be closer um to the same whiteness as well which is very very damaging um you have people working overtime and Um, not being able to explore and express their sense of identity and belonging as they wish because they're trying to live the New Zealand dream, the American dream. Um, So it is very, very damaging, the model myth minority. And it's also untrue. The Asian community isn't homogenous. You cannot put a whole community um, into one bracket like that and another damaging thing about the model myth minority is um, any violence or racism towards Asians um, are desensitized um, and not recognized for what it is because they are no longer seen as a vulnerable group it's that proximity to whiteness again um, that is very very damaging Um, so that is what the model myth minority is about just to give you a bit of background um so you can understand the conversation more when we get into it later on and yes i'm so excited for you guys to tune into this episode um hope you enjoy it and thank you once again for tuning in and thank you to kaz for being you and being so awesome i learned so much Kyota Kaz, welcome to Headscarfs and Good Yarns. Kyota. Welcome to the show and thank you for being thank you for being here. And also thank you for being the first human on the show after a whole year of just me <laughs> solo recording. Woohoo! Woo! <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, I've known Kaz since my high school years, which is a very, very long time ago now. Um, and I was a geek at the environmental club and she was like With my leadership mentor, she would always come to our meetings and help us out. So I'm really excited to have you on the show and to pick your brain even more in the race space. Mm. Um, And every question that I'd like to, every question, sorry, every episode that I'd like to begin with the same question, Mm. which is when was the last time you had a good yarn? Um, And it doesn't have to be race related, it can be something very small or very big not personal or, or you know very personal um, but when was the last we had a really good conversation that just left you with lots of food for thought
0: oh I think I'm quite blessed actually because I feel like I regularly have good yarns um, it's something that I maybe it's probably because I'm quite serious so it's like I constantly seek out good yarns when I interact with people but I'm also quite introverted so I think it's that contrast of like you, you kind of have your own alone space time and then when you go and have Catch ups with people, etc. You know, it's often going to be quite deep and full on, and um, yeah, d- diving into the nitty gritty. So, like, probably even in this past week, I had a really, really great yarn um, with a couple of friends um, at a local cafe here in Nino, um, and it was just awesome just diving deep and being really honest and vulnerable, um, laughing a bit, sharing thoughts, um, yeah, thinking about the world, um, sitting with some of the uncomfortable, but also having some safe space and yeah being able to encourage one another as well so it was actually just a really great awesome yarn
1: oh yeah. please it's nice when you have conversations like that with your friends eh? when you're yes yeah, sitting in the uncomfortable as you're saying but you're in a safe place yeah. to kind of explore those icky feelings that we often you know tend to ignore or kind of pass over yeah
0: for that. sure yeah
1: <laughs> oh cool so let's go right back to the beginning because I'm sure people tuning in are really eager to know who you are, where you're from. Um, so yeah, where, where would you say where you're from and how do you identify? Mm.
0: So I was born here in Ta City, um, and both of my parents are from southern China. Uh, so they actually both moved to New Zealand, Aotearoa, on separate journeys and they met here and then started a family in essence. And um, so although a huge chunk of me is Chinese in many ways, um, a huge chunk of me is also a Kiwi. So I often joke about being a Chiwi um, because I I, I do feel like I kind of hold this weird, like in-between worlds. Um, I think a lot of people who kind of come from like either migrant whanau or you know they kind of have mixed cultures you kind of find yourself in between worlds often and you kind of in some ways develop your own sort of culture um, that kind of takes from the different worlds that you're part of and that have built you up but you also have to find your feet where you exactly where you are so yeah I identify in those sort of spaces Um, but I also think there's so much about kind of who I am so a huge part of it for me is also at this current stage um is someone who is identifies as female and um heterosexual and someone who is Chinese but born in that Kiwi context um yeah I kind of am involved with a number of different things as well so my community impacts who I am in many ways um and also my faith so I'm I identify as Christian, particularly an Anglican, and so that world's really shaped and formed a lot of my views over the years, um, yeah, and continues to challenge me in different ways too,
1: yeah. Oh, wow, yeah, there's a, a kind of um, a lot to unpack there. Mm. Um, just out of curiosity, because I haven't met that many um, Christians who are also Chinese. Mm. Um, is that like the... A, a huge religion in in the Chinese culture so Christian
0: yeah it's an interesting sort of one so we often like there's parts of Chinese culture which like regions like Hong Kong for instance which um, obviously colonialism <laughs> makes things interesting so um, British kind of impacts within Hong Kong itself has meant that there's lots of churches in, in Hong Kong Um And so a lot of my family moved from southern China. So what was known as Canton, um, hence Cantonese, um, have moved to Hong Kong. And so Christian faith, I suppose, wasn't a surprise. Um, And so, although that's not where it came from for me. And so in New Zealand, I think that's kind of where I was introduced to a lot of that. Um, But for me, it wasn't actually my introduction to faith wasn't particularly a local thing. It was actually from a Chinese based church that kind of ran house churches um and they've kind of got like a network of house churches across the world and that was actually when i really took a big step into faith Mm -hmm. um and you know growing up i actually grew up with what they call ancestry worshiping which is kind of like treating your ancestors as the god who looks after you so as you burn incense and Mm -hmm. bring up offerings um the is your ancestors will look after you um yeah, and so that's an interesting thing of growing up with that, but actually resonating more with the Christian faith as I grew up and as I wrestled with that, and mm-hmm. really started to ask about faith and what does it mean.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. This ancestral worshiping does. How does that tie in with um, filial piety, like that sense of. Loyalty to your family and like carrying out your duties.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting sort of dynamic because I think growing up, you know, we often did that out of, you know, almost obedience that Mm -hmm. you kind of were told please go and do A, B and C and follow through with that. And so um, I think my parents have actually been always quite good at not just going, this is the only thing you can do and be full stop, um, but kind of keeping that as part of who we are and then allowing us to explore things as we wanted to do. And part of that, I think, is that dynamic of being migrants you know, children of migrants in that sense that um, there's a degree of how much do you pass on and then how much do you force onto your kids mm. because you actually want them to be able to survive in the world that you've now decided to live in? Um, and I know for well, for instance, my folks sort of had um, quite a bit of sacrifice of going, actually, we're going to leave our families. We're going to leave what we know is home mm. um, and move to a country which speaks a different language. Um, and, you know, how do we actually then raise our family in that while still holding some of what's important to us? So, yeah.
1: It's actually a lot. I like growing up I've always struggled living in these two cultures Mm. and there would always be cultural clashes with my parents Mm. and we would just have bitter arguments really bitter arguments and I think especially in my teenage years I'd just look to my parents and be like oh they're so strict and they deny me of my rights and and my (laughs) freedom but as I've like you know become an adult I just look at them and I think oh my gosh they've gone through so much totally really strong, strong humans and they've left everything that they've known to come to a country. And they're learning too. Like Mm,
0: Totally, yeah.
1: uh, Like one thing that I think they're beginning to realise, oh, this is really, I wish we didn't do that, was the language. Mm. So they were really concerned um, about us being behind in school and not knowing English. So they really encourage us to... Like speak English at home and to read a lot and make sure that our English was good, so we would Mm. be able to make the most out of um, our like education. (laughs) But then the consequence of that is that we're not so well versed in our own mother tongue. And uh, but I and I think they beat themselves up for it. But you know, you they were doing the best that they could at that time of what they thought was the best thing. So. Yeah, mm. it's, it's hard. I think people don't talk about the struggle of migrant parents enough. Oh, mm. totally.
0: And I think, you know, that reality of I guess, you know, alluding to those safe spaces that you can have corridor, often means that we don't give space for any of those sorts of things. So, you know, and you can't address a problem until you actually leave it out in the open sort of thing. It's the whole, you know, thing, classic thing about a wound, almost, that if you don't talk about it and allow space for it to breathe or be sorted, that you're going to have the problems of not actually ensuring it's going to be healing properly mm. in the future. And I think it's the same sort of deal. Yeah.
1: Do you have... Um... Sorry if this is too personal, but when you were growing up, did you have lots of like cultural clashes with your parents, or were they trying to replicate what they had back home here in New Zealand for for you guys? Or
0: yeah, I think it's quite weird because I guess like, I don't really like I don't I've not talked greatly I suppose with a number of other people who probably had a similar situation mm. to me growing up, um, and so. And there's also that dynamic of, you know, what you grew up with to you is normal, but to everyone else it's a bit weird. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, for me, like, I think about, you notice this more so when you're in school because that's obviously when you can talk to other people about what you've maybe eaten for breakfast or, you know, you look at each other's lunches and you go, oh, that's different. Um, You know, and I probably only realized maybe when I was an intermediate how different my world was Um, going on a school camp one time and I was like, what's this breakfast like and you know it was like cereal which is very commonplace in kiwi culture but i was like what is this this is so not filling and i remember being like really dissatisfied with breakfast because i was like <laughs> this is not going to fill me up and you know this is coming from someone who was used to waking up um and at least my dad was really good at feeding us um but he made sure that we had like a bowl of rice with something and you know so that's kind of odd because i think most people are like why would you eat rice for breakfast but seriously, it's so filling. Um, and I love it. Um, and so it was kind of like one of those things that growing up for me, that was normal. And I didn't realize how that wasn't normal for many other people mm-hmm. in the country. Um, so it was only yeah when I went to school camp that I actually realized how different my life kind of was. Um, and then, yeah, even like, things like pudding and dessert, like there's a bit of a, oh, what is this thing? So that was probably something I did enjoy about kind of being on school camps because we didn't really (laughs) get that at home. But um, yeah, it was kind of those moments that make you realise how things are different. Um, And I think when you're in a teenage years, that's kind of when you start really understanding that there are some clashes and there are some things that you kind of go, what is it about me or what is it about my parents or what is it that's this culture or that culture? Mm. Um, Yeah, and as it, it, you know, growing up, you then... And entering into adulthood you then start to kind of pick and choose what works for you I suppose that kind of frames who you are as a person um so there's many things that I still love and you know on a really terrible day I'm pretty content with just eating a bowl of rice with something because that's actually quite <laughs> wholesome and calming and enjoyable for me um yeah and so it's kind of those things of I think there were some clashes growing up but probably like more out of questioning as opposed to too much of the clashing um and part of that was because my parents i think knew that they wanted to give us space um and we probably quite had quite clear lines around like our home life so like home life was kind of perhaps how we would do things back in china for instance to some extent um but then you know if you stepped out the doors then it was quite open to being different
1: oh wow if you could go back in time and tell teenage Kaz advice around growing up and identity and belonging what do you reckon you'd tell her Ooh,
0: that's a really good question (laughs) I think I would encourage my teenage self to dive deeper into my culture um you know like I think parents are often doing totally the best that they possibly can in their space and circumstance. Um, But I don't think that should mean that, you know, growing up in a slightly different world um, means that, like, I should have kind of, like, not engaged as much with my culture. So, um, and part of that is probably being as an adult, as a younger adult, I kind of leant a bit more into... um, Bicultural issues here in Aotearoa New Zealand and that for me kind of opened this door on the sense of like how important it is to understand where your tūranga waiwai is so where the place that you stand is mm. and I think that if you don't kind of know some of your whakapapa and your genealogy and the stories of your own people um which can be really challenging and hard because i think there can be often shame that's attached to not knowing those details on all that sort of stuff that i think yeah like for me i wish i had kind of leant a bit more into that because you know as your folks get older and stuff it becomes harder um to kind of really get into those stories or to you know ask people who are Back in the homelands about like mm. what things were and how things were because so much changes so quickly. So yeah, part of me wishes I would have leaned a bit more into that.
1: I yeah, I also would have the same advice for my um younger self as well. Just really dive deep and be proud of who you are. Mm. Learn as much as you can. Because mm. as you're growing up, you know, your parents and your grandparents are also getting older as well. Totally. it's a a treasure to be able to have that knowledge and to be Mm. able to pass it on um that's very interesting that you've brought up the biculturalism Mm. because it wasn't until recently ish or the past couple of years where i've really been trying to have conversations and learn as much as i can around biculturalism versus multiculturalism Mm. and um as i've you know, done my learnings and had conversations with people I've noticed that within my community we don't really talk about the tree of Waitangi we mm. just don't even like see our place in Teteriti mm. which is like very very interesting and so that's very cool that um, you as a Chiwi has ordered up so mm. um, yeah, what pulled you into thinking about Teteriti and like what to you as a chinese kiwi wahina like why is it so important Mm,
0: um i think you know being someone who was born here in aotearoa new zealand and someone who's really passionate about justice issues you can't get around not engaging with titi like i think you have to like i think there is you know again shame attached to those sort of dynamics for various reasons. So, you know, depending on where you stand. So if you identify as like a white Pākehā who may have had some historical um, connections to those that were maybe perpetrators or some of the dynamics that created injustice, there's a lot of shame that can be attached to that. Or um, I also think there can be shame on the flip side of that if you're Māori as well, and some of the dynamics of, um, you know, people who no longer were able to speak the language for, quite a season Um, so there's like I think when things have kind of been driven from those negative sort of emotions whether that be shame or fear that can be really harmful for our communities as a whole and I think we're seeing some of those things play out um, when we look at you know, crime statistics, or um, even health statistics, or a number of other bits and pieces of inequity within our country, so you know when we start to see these problems in our society of just today, and then we start digging a bit deeper, um, you can kind of see where a lot of that comes back to those treaty issues that haven't really been addressed or dealt with, um, and also recognizing how much that stuff is relational. And so, you know, and I always have kind of stood by the fact that you can't have multiculturalism until you can do biculturalism. Um, But I think that in Aotearoa New Zealand, part of uh, how we do biculturalism relies on how we understand the treaty. So if we don't understand how that plays a role in our lives Mm -hmm. um, and where we sit within the treaty, then we're going to have some massive struggles moving forward. And I think that's just really important because it's kind of how you do the small stuff can really impact the big stuff. And so for me, the treaty has been so important in that journey. Um, And you know, part of the dynamics of my lifestyle has been I've been really engaged with justice issues. So that was a natural invitation to go deeper to understand what the treaty meant for me. Um, but then when I started working a lot with young people, um, Mm -hmm. that was hammered home for me because it was kind of like a lot of the young people who are growing up in today's day and age, um, and the ones that I've worked with were impacted in some way, shape or form by the treaty in some ways, perhaps not even realizing it. So, um, you know, so for me, it became this thing about how do we actually treat this as a living document and how does it look like in my life? And how do I help others actually see how it's important and plays a role in their lives too?
1: Yeah. Um, oh, there's so much goodness to unpack in there. Um, just for people who are tuning in, they're like biculturalism, multiculturalism, I, I think I know what these words mean, mm. but how would you define those two things and like yeah. the distinction between the two?
0: Yeah, so I kind of see it as like, biculturalism is like bi, so two, two cultures being able to kind of work together. Um, and I'm all about... Interdependence. So, like, you know, people have their autonomy to some extent so they can be who they are, but then also there's this beautiful, well, hopefully, if it's working well, um, beautiful relationship between them. And I, and you know, so multiculturalism being a lot more than that. So, I genuinely think that if two cultures are unable to get along, you're never really going to have that process in place where multiple cultures can get along and actually do that because, um, yeah, I do think we are interdependent of one another um, so to be in a true and honest and wholesome relationship we need that kind of dynamic to really play out with biculturalism first um, and it's not to say that we ignore like all these different great things that are happening mm. but I think if we're living really good honest relationships that does require at least two of those to be able to do it well
1: That makes sense that makes sense to think about by having that strong foundation for biculturalism first before we really start delving deep into what does a multicultural New Zealand look like. Yeah. Um, And then you are talking about the role that we all play in the treaty and and treating it as a living document. Mm. As um, a daughter of of migrants, how do you see the migrant community playing a role in Te Tiriti?
0: Mm. Um, Yeah, and that's an interesting one because I often think... So I grew up in a primary school that no longer exists, actually. um, But it was predominantly like I think it was like it was quite high Maori population Um, I don't even know if it was like 50-50 give or take but it was quite high comparative to other areas Um, and one of the beautiful dynamics of that meant that I was able to be immersed and kind of connected with Maori culture probably easier than others Um, and yeah like I think for me that has kind of helped to kind of enter into that sort of space. Um, I might just get you to repeat the question. So no, actually... that's
1: all right. Um, so just thinking about the role that we all play in Titi, mm.
0: Um
1: the role of migrants specifically, how, yeah. do, you, how do you feel our, our role should be?
0: Yeah, and I think, like, in many ways, I think there can be quite a, like, divide between a lot of Pakia and Māori, but I often think that migrant communities are really good at seeing the in-between. So, like, growing up as someone who was Chinese, who was able to understand and see some of the struggles of Māori community, but also not quite fitting, and and we weren't Māori, so we weren't able to fit, like, neatly into that sort of space either, meant we were able to see, like, the other perspective from a Pakia angle. Um, Mm. So, growing up, I always found it easy to understand both sides because we didn't belong with either, so to speak and so it was easy for us to ask the questions around like and raising some of those things because in many ways we can relate and resonate a lot with Māori in many ways we can relate and resonate with Pākehā. Um and I often think that you know some of that is the dynamic of how so Chinese communities often operate as there's a lot of intergenerational play um, and we understand and kind of connect with that village sense so Mm -hmm. the iwi, the hapu sort of dynamic within a Maori world but I think we also have these kind of dynamics within our own culture around like what is success and how do we attain that and how do we kind of engage with the world which probably lends a bit more to a Pakia world so I think there's this dynamic where we can have a lot of kind of we can have a role of asking questions. We can also have a role of reflecting back on some of what we see and observe um, and perhaps even opening people's minds up into how that treaty could be a living document.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this dynamic of being able to understand both sides or have it inside or mm. be in that unique position of having um, a foot in each world, is that a conversation that is happening in like Chinese communities? I know... Like it's a big question. You don't, you won't know every single Chinese.
0: Yeah, person. yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, what is the general sense that you get in the Chinese community about asking those questions or mm. under, like, ha- actively being conscious of that um, unique position?
0: Yeah, I think it's probably something that is happening more within like our younger generations. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know that there's like a group of you know agents for Tēnā Ranga that support, like, what's happening with Māori. Um, and I also think people um, like Ming Foon, for instance, um, who was Gisborne's Mayor for um, quite a few years and who's now doing a lot more work within the human rights sort of space as well, that, um, that kind of opens up that conversation. Um, but I think generally, like, most... Chinese cultures or you know most of Chinese culture and other cultures have a tendency to kind of go oh we don't really want to get in to someone else's conversation mm-hmm. so I think there's probably a bit of a dynamic where there's tension in that um, like you'll have groups that are quite keen to have that conversation yeah. and are quite keen to explore that and see what that means and then you'll have others that are kind of like oh we don't really want to get into their tension their conflicts um, we'll just mind our own business um, yeah. and I think that Kind of that aspect still exist just purely because, in many ways, that's kind of how a lot of Chinese people found their feet and survived in Aotearoa um, yeah. A lot of it was just keeping to themselves. So I think there is probably like a dynamic where, although they might have this, you know, wealth of knowledge to share, or um, and there, there may be some conversations within Chinese community itself. There's where those interlink with the rest of society. Limited.
1: Mm. Oh, that sentence that you said of just, you know, keeping to yourselves, I think people forget how rough it was, especially when the first wave of mm. um, Chinese migrants came over to New Zealand, like, just learning the history. Honestly, horrible.
0: There's some interesting mm. dynamics around that, eh, because there's heaps of, um, yeah, stories around how Chinese people were um, treated in the early days. Um, but then, yeah, that's it's a really, really eye-opening dynamic when you start to dive into that history a bit, because even then, there's actually like records of how Chinese people were still able to vote before Maori were, and so there's like these weird, crazy dynamics yeah. where you just go, in many ways, Chinese were hated by so many people um, in the early days, um, but then, yeah, when you start to learn that actually they still got the vote before Maori did, it's quite eye-opening because <laughs> you kind of go. It seems even more wrong <laughs> oh, <laughs> and it just yeah raises so many more questions um around how we do life here in Aotearoa and yeah. the things that have kind of impacted um how we are now yeah
1: yeah you can definitely appreciate where the you know sticking to my own yeah belief comes from when you know there's your mindset is just survival mm, totally. There's no space for thriving for living you're mm. just trying to survive right mm. um so going back to how you said you know a sense of not trying to get involved in the conversation because it's not not our business do you think with everything that's been happening with the um attacks recently in america and just the increase in um hate against asian people since covid mm. do you think there's a sense of oh this is actually all of our business perhaps mm. or there's that a sense of solidarity or those conversations are opening up more you reckon
0: i think so um and I, again like i honor people like ming fun who have started opening the door on that and you know i think um, even the fact that we as a country are probably on a bit of a journey in terms of beginning to really dive into a racism conversation mm. um, I think we're used to blatant racism and calling that out generally but I think at the end of the day one of the biggest challenges as we face as a country is how things like casual racism play a huge role um, and you know I think COVID in many ways just unmasked a lot about it <laughs> like um I think about for my own journey or friends of mine um, you know when news of COVID struck like the amount of jokes or the, or hate that was put on Asians um, and even just how uncomfortable like even I felt at times being in the supermarket mm. or others who identify as Asian um, and their experiences in supermarkets, it's quite jarring. Like it's yeah, quite confronting to hear um, when you think, oh, yeah, New Zealand's pretty, you know, progressive or it's a good place to be or, you know, and you kind of hear these stories that make you go, yeah, we still have quite a long way to walk. Um, and it's not to say, you know, like even thinking about the situation um, in America with the shootings and kind of going on one level. Man, I'm glad we're in New Zealand because, you know, at least we've kind of got these rules around guns and other things that kind of protect us and we're not opening that sort of can of worms in quite the same way. But the flip side of that is, like, in some ways, casual racism and those sort of dynamics can be just as destroying. So it's quite, yeah, challenging in those sort of spaces where you go, how do we actually have those conversations in a way that could be constructive And helpful for people to understand um and I even think about it on like raising I often post stuff on my own personal Facebook page um that can be related to race issues um particularly casual racism because you know someone who was born and raised here it's amazing how many times someone will comment on how good my English is um yeah (laughs) and so like you know those sorts of things where I'm like some very interesting, um, you know, assumptions that are attached with that. Given how many people have moved from elsewhere um, to Aotearoa New Zealand, um, yeah, and they will never be asked that question purely on the basis of the colour of their skin. Yeah, imagine
1: having that privilege. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Um, Yeah, how has your life changed since COVID in terms of, yeah, being an Asian woman? Like, do you feel, like, how's your safety and have you ever felt dehumanised and, yeah, how has your life changed?
0: Yeah, I think in many ways as someone who's probably been quite involved in a a number of kind of community-based things or... um, seeking out justice in many ways and that i think that journey itself has kind of lent lent its lens to helping me deal with a lot of changes like that um because i don't get as shocked by some of the stuff i hear or see because in some ways i expect or i anticipate it or um to some extent, it's become a normal-ish mm-hmm. part of my life because I'm kind of exposed to different people who th- you know who think differently and that variety of thought and way of operating and being and doing. So, in some ways, like I think I just keep going on the way I do because I kind of am used to some of that. Um, but I am recognizing as well that I probably you know am quite cautious about how I put myself out there or things that I say. Um, because in some ways you don't want to correct this big thing that's going to make it even worse. So you're constantly kind of going, you know, when's the time and space to actually have that conversation and throw it out there? or um, Yeah, so I'm probably being more mindful of what I say and do, um, particularly in public spheres. Um, Yeah, but in many ways I feel like I live quite a different, unique life in many ways that it has meant that I haven't experienced some of the worst of the worst, which I know others have?
1: Mm, it has... Yeah, just seeing things on social media, I'm like, it's actually shocking. And I think I've been having these kind of conversations um, with people from all walks of life. Mm. And from um, my... Not my Pākehā friends, but the Pakeha, some of the Pākehā people that I've spoken to about you know, what's been going on in the world recently, I think it's been a huge... Um, learning curve just Mm. thinking about racism outside of the context of it happening to Māori people or to Muslim Mm. people I think because of everything that's happened with the Black Lives Matter Mm. and protect... um, ihumato, everyone's been talking about race in relation to the Muslim community or to the Maori community but I think a lot of people have forgotten that it happens to our Asian Mm. community as well and I think people have this idea of you know Asian, the Asian community is quite similar to the white community right because Mm. they're not as they're not featuring in the same way Maori um, people do in statistics, mm. um, and then that's where I learnt about the mo- model myth minority. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's that's so cool that that, that term exists because it gives a working definition of something that I've, I've definitely noticed in in my personal life, um, even though I'm. I'm don't like a it back to Asian heritage, but I'm friends with a lot of Asian people, and I've I've noticed how people around them treat them compared to how they treat me because of this model myth minority. And yeah, I'm just very curious to hear from you. How has the um, model myth minority showing up in your personal life?
0: Yeah, um, it was quite interesting because I like yeah I hadn't actually heard that term till recently, and so it was quite. Fascinating to kind of dive into that um, growing up because I guess, you know, I think growing up as a young person and in many ways, um, like, you know, if you were good at maths as an Asian person, people would be like, of course you are, you're Asian. And so, you know, I used to get that often. Um, and it's quite interesting because, like, to some extent you jar away from some of those interesting comments because you're like, I don't know if you know ethnicity should necessarily play a role in how good at math you are, for mm. instance. Um, but it's that funny dynamic of how um, yeah how a culture kind of plays out, I suppose, and how you know either some people pick it up, or some people ignore it, or some people almost rebel against it. Um, and you know, like growing up, I remember in high school I used to love maths. Like you know, I would happily tell you that I was a maths geek. Um, And I'm still pretty good with numbers today. And so, like, that's something that I relished in. But I know for well, not every Asian is good at maths. Mm. (laughs) Um, So it's an interesting, yeah, the myth is interesting in the sense of, like, this weird additional expectation um, that you would be good academically. Um, And it's an interesting dynamic as well, again, like with most things. It starts from something. But then when you start digging down deeper into these dynamics and, um, you know, why Asians often are pushed to excel so well academically. And then actually if you start going into like the history um, of why parents often push their children so hard, for instance, it's quite fascinating. So like in my own personal like whānau situation, like both my parents didn't go to university. Yeah. And so, and they moved, they both moved to New Zealand to seek a better life for themselves as well as their own fano back at home, um, and so you often hear about how many Chinese people, and this is why a lot of them moved out to Aotearoa particularly in the gold rush, for instance, because the whole idea was they would find work elsewhere and make sure that that money was sent back to their home villages mm-hmm. to look after their fano, um, and then you know so when my parents ended up finding each other here in Aotearoa New Zealand, and then um, having a family somewhere sister and my brother and myself um, a huge part of their push for us was because they wanted to see us succeed and you know in some ways do better than they did um, so that we would live good lives which would also mean in the future our parents would live good lives because the intergenerational connection that you looked after your parents Um, and so a huge part of being pushed in that direction is about how do you succeed because if you can get a university qualification which should equate to a good job then you will be secure in the, in your future yeah um and obviously there's not just academics which is kind of the thing that was kind of a marker of success but um or security but that was kind of one of the big areas where that push was coming from and a huge part of that was because my parents lived in times where poverty struck um and you know and so often these things that have actually impacted um, what has happened in the past, um, and even here in Aotearoa we often talk about how do we break poverty cycles, you know, and for many, in many ways, that's the same for my folks. So for them, moving here was to help try and break some of that, so that in essence, we would eventually have better lives, and hopefully, if, you know, and if we decide to have families, that will also hopefully mean that that poverty cycle is broken yeah. and you know we keep moving forward um, and so it's an interesting sort of dynamic when you start to yeah, drill down underneath this push to succeed well academically um, and again particularly in worlds in the western world because I think often you know we also have these weird markers of what we consider to be successful which is often equated to having a good high paying job um, you know irrespective of how you're actually feeling and if you're Mentally and emotionally well, you know, that's almost besides the point. So it's quite interesting, yeah, when you actually start to dive deep into that corridor.
1: Education just means a whole lot more, doesn't it? When you totally. put it into context, it's yep. not just another opportunity. It's like your whole life, and not just your whole life, but your family back home, and also like your the family to come, like. It means a whole lot more. Um, and, like, in what other ways would the model myth minority show up for you? Because um, I was talking about it with one of my other friends, and she was saying, um, like, she didn't see herself as an ethnic person. She was like, mm. oh, like, I, I'm i not causing trouble like, you know, all the other ethnic kids are. Like, I'm, I'm basically white. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But I think that that just shows how damaging it is, right? Like, it restricts how you truly see yourself and where your sense of identity is. Like, you're not having... You're associating, um, like, those bad statistics with the other, and mm. you're not part of the other, right? And I thought that was really interesting that she she said that.
0: Mm. And I mm. guess for me, like, it kind of taps a lot into that whole kōrero around privilege. Like, you can't use your privilege in a good way unless you recognize that you actually have privilege and you know I think that kind of falls into it as well so like for me I realized pretty early on that like in life in many ways for my own sanity and integrity I'm really glad I actually saw some of this before I made a decision just to follow what you know was expected of me versus Mm -hmm. what I actually really enjoyed and loved doing Um, and you know, a huge part of that was kind of going, actually, I've got a platform that many people would not have, um, and how do I actually use that in the best way possible? Um, and so, you know, like, in some ways, I probably broke the chain of doing, you know, what was expected in that sense, and kind of what people saw of me, um, you know, I stepped away from doing anything that was around science or Mets in my later years of high school because i was like actually this is not something that gives me a great deal of mm. life like i'm good at it but it's not something that i see myself kind of going yep this is where i want to make change in the world so you know i actually started asking questions around what do i feel called to and what is it that makes me happy um because the last thing i wanted to be in the situation of was if i got hit by a bus in like a week's time I wouldn't want to be having spent all my time focused on just studying or just, you know, climbing the success mm. ladder, but actually how do I use who I am and the place that I am to actually do good in the world where I am right now? Um, you know, I think every day we're kind of afforded these beautiful opportunities to engage with a world that is kind of screaming out for hope, healing, and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I think that's kind of been... In some ways, I guess I kind of almost did, instead of kind of going with it or just questioning it and just going, no, I'll still keep going, I think I probably rebelled quite heavily against that myth in some ways. Um, And yeah, and part of that was kind of going, when you actually start to see those things and you call them out or you question them or you challenge them, um, there's quite a bit of personal wrestling that goes in with that. Um, But I also think it can open up other doors that we often don't see or talk about because it's not, you know, we're so used to just going with the flow of things, um, particularly in a mainstream sort of westernized system and culture um, that kind of says, just keep going with this stuff. And if you do A, B and C, you'll be successful and great. Um, You won't necessarily be happy, but we won't talk about that. That doesn't
1: matter, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. So... Kaz does lots of for everyone else training, and she does lots of awesome mahi and, um, for the youth and for the local community. And so you're always having lots of stimulating, challenging conversations, sitting yeah. with that uncomfortable. And I think a lot of people are kind of scared of that, right? They're scared mm. of having those conversations, and they're scared of making mistakes, and just even being with those uncomfortable feelings. But um, I think we kind of have to. If we want to change anything, if we want... To, yeah if we want anything to be different then we have to do things mm. differently and we have to go against the path of least resistance which is what we often tend to do. Um what would be like your one advice because I know there are a lot of people right now who have seen taking in what's happening in the world and they're like okay I want to stop Asian hate. I want to be an ally. And a huge part of that is, like, having those uncomfortable conversations. Totally. Yeah. And as someone who navigates that space quite often, like, yeah, what would be, like, your your tip for having those uncomfortable conversations?
0: This is going to sound really simple and probably cliche, but it's actually just listen. Mm. Um, You know, I think we come in with a lot of assumptions often, um, and human nature, you know, I think we have this tendency to want to fix everything or we want to just like set it back. So everyone's happy again. Um, but actually there's a huge, huge amount to do with just listening and actually hearing someone out and hearing someone's story up because reality is like every person is different as well. So how they experience casual racism will probably vary to some extent. Um, You know, and the experience of it will be different. So, they may experience exactly the same thing as someone else, but actually, how that impacts them or their family is going to be different. Um, And how they respond to it is going to be different. And what's going to be useful for them is going to be different to what would be useful for someone else. Um, You know, I think for people like myself, I'm not going to be too concerned about calling someone else. Out on that stuff, but someone else might need an advocate. So you know, there's going to be like different needs in that kind of space. Um, and I actually think that you know, when we stop to listen and really listen um, to hear the real experiences of someone, that is often uncomfortable for us because we don't know what to do or how to fix it. Yeah. Um, but sometimes the goal is actually for that person knowing someone's truly listening and trying to understand what their experience is, um, which again opens doors to kind of empathy and actually seeing change. Um, It's when someone starts going, oh no, I know exactly how you think and feel, um, that that actually becomes quite unhelpful because you kind of go, okay, it's quite obvious, this is really uncomfortable for you. But then you think, but this is actually what I'm living through, not just something that I'm just sharing. So, um, you know, it's that thing of how do we help people truly listen so that something might change um, because the reality is if you have that privilege to walk alongside someone there's a high chance that you may also have the privilege to be able to speak into other people's worlds in, in a way that I wouldn't be able to mm. so you know if you're privileged enough you may be able to speak to your peers in a way that's going to help them change their behavior for the better yeah. um, in a way that I would never be able to do. And so, you know, it is going to be varying depending on who you talk to and um, the path that they're walking. Um, But I also think there's a lot of strength and joy in actually just being heard properly as well because I think so few spaces allow this conversation to happen openly and honestly and with vulnerability that, you know, when you do get that just relish and that privilege, even if that is uncomfortable. So, yeah, I just... I think my invitation for people listening would be to just sit in that discomfort um, and just love the people who you're walking with.
1: Oh, so there's, yeah, there's a really, really beautiful way of outlining why just listening is so important. Because mm. I think we hear it all the time, but I don't think by people's actions, I don't think people truly understand how important it is to listen mm. and the weight that it carries. So thank you so much for presenting us to how important listening is. And I wish I could have you forever to sit down <laughs> and talk. Um, but I do acknowledge that time is wrapping up. So thank you so much for being on the show. I'll just have to thank have you again. Because no we've <laughs> got through all of the questions. Um, and I just, I love what your brain producers and
0: thank you so much um, for giving us
1: this treasure this episode okay. thank you for
0: being on the show Thank you so much for having me <laughs> and catch you next time keep our no.
1: Thank you for tuning in into another episode of headsgars and good yarns to keep spinning the yarns let us know your thoughts You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hits and good yarns or email us at headsgarfs at gmail.com.